You're listening to FemLonk, a podcast about inclusion, policy, politics, and current affairs. I'm your host, Katie Davey. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello, hello. It's election time in New Brunswick again. This episode will give you a bit of a mid-campaign update, um, and we'll be back on the Thursday after election day for a total analysis and recap on what happened. At this moment, I think, you know, it's too soon to predict, so I'm not even going to try, but I just want to let you know we'll be back to give you an unpacking of what the heck happened. As many of you know, I'm from New Brunswick and have spent time in advocacy, policy, politics, and government in New Brunswick. Although we now have listeners all over Canada and the U.S., it's important for me to honor our New Brunswick roots, and hopefully this episode will share some insight with folks outside of New Brunswick, and for my fellow New Brunswickers, I hope these thoughts actually resonate. I have had a bit of a head start on this episode. Um, I've joined the CBC a few times now over the campaign to give my thoughts, so you'll get some of them here as well. The good news is I'm not recording this at 6 a.m. like I joined the CBC, so I hopefully will be a little bit more awake. I also haven't done a solo deep dive episode in a while, so I did ask folks on social media what they wanted to hear. I got lots of policy questions along with some tactical questions as well. I'm going to do my best to address a lot of them here. Um, I'll, I'll first start this episode with some overall observations. I'll then move into some policy, followed by campaign tactics and field, and I'll finally comment on the actual paths to victory. Okay, let's, uh, let's get into some general observations. So, from my perspective, the tremendous opportunity of this campaign was the ability to provide a vision for a full pandemic recovery. We led the country in pandemic response. We could have also seen a really remarkable plan to lead the country as well on recovery. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen a bold vision for the future from any party, and in particularly the liberals or conservatives, and time is running out. Um, We're recording this episode on Wednesday night, so election day is literally 10 days away. We still only have one party platform, the NDP, as a wise voter told me, spoiler, it was my dad, over the weekend, uh, nobody has any idea what's going on right now. So in many cases, campaign signs are actually just popping up. Um, People don't know who their candidates are. The field program and the actual one-on-one contact with voters in many local ridings just really doesn't exist. And it's, you know, it's the end of summer. This is the time when people are checked out. I think when we talk about tactics a little down the road, this is exactly what the conservatives were hoping for. But, um, you know, I think this is something that really colors this election. And I hope that whatever the results are, uh, folks really from across the country don't necessarily take the results as a sign one way or another. I'll also say the path to victory actually really remains narrow in this election. Um, It's likely that this election will be decided by a handful of votes and a handful of ridings. And, you know, I think this is really why you're seeing some some kind of micro-targeted commitments rather than overarching vision. But that being said, I don't think those micro-targeted commitments are enough to swing a, a large amount of voters. Just for context for folks listening who, I guess 
aren't super New Brunswick politics nerdy. The reason why this election was actually called is because the conservative premier Blaine Higgs um, has been governing a minority government. There's been tons of stuff that's gone on over the last two years um, from an electoral perspective. One liberal resigned and a conservative member passed away. Um, then a conservative cabinet minister resigned from cabinet and the party and is sitting as an independent and is actually running for the liberals this time. So the clear um, confidence in the legislature, or rather it was not clear what the confidence path was in the legislature. And further to that, the premier, uh, you know, didn't feel like he had the Authority is not the right word, but I guess he didn't feel like he was necessarily empowered to actually govern the way he wanted to. I think that's totally fair. His party got about 30% of the vote. So, you know, I think this is the context to which we're going into this election. Um, we have four parties in the legislature right now with only 49 seats. So it is, it's a very tight legislature. Um, and, and, you know, I think this context is important to understand going into the conversations that will unfold in this episode. The conditions of this election not surprisingly benefit the Conservatives. Um, I think turnout is going to be a real concern for many reasons, um, specifically the timing. And we know, not just in New Brunswick, but we know this, you know, in Canada more broadly, low voter, tur- low voter turnout, rather, typically benefits the Conservative Party because their base is stable and always turns out. In the last three federal elections, whether it was Harper, I guess it was Harper, Harper, Shear, the amount of voters that turned out for the Conservative Party federally remained pretty much the same. The reason, particularly in 2015, that the Liberals um, won with such a majority was actually because new voters Uh, particularly young voters, came and turned out for them. So I, again, think that's an important consideration as we think about what election day will look like here as well. I'll comment just uh, for a moment on actually the candidate um, composition. So in 2018, which was the last New Brunswick election just two years ago, um, there was a record number of women nominated, um, a record number of votes cast for women. Uh, actually, about 30% more uh, women were nominated than 2014, and 30% more votes were cast for women um, in 2018 than 14. And then a record number of women were elected. That being said, it was only 11, so that's still like 22% of the legislature. It's far too far too few. But... Obviously, in that context, we should have or could have assumed that this election would also see uh, that momentum continue, but actually it hasn't. So only 72 women have been nominated in this election, and that's about 32% of all candidates, which is down from about 38%, I think, last election, or 36 Regardless, it's down. And this is actually broadly because both the Liberals and the People's Alliance only nominated 20% women. I will say, if you had have told me, like, literally this time two years ago, because we would have been in the middle of an election campaign, that the Liberal Party would only nominate 20% women in the next general election, I would have literally, like, laughed in your face. 
for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, it, it, you know, nominating and getting more women in positions of influence and power was a huge priority of uh, the Gallant government and the and the Gallant Liberal Party. So the fact that that tide has shifted so much in such a short time is striking. Um, I, I I won't comment more on that, but I just wanted to kind of get that on the record that I, I find it totally striking and people will make excuses for why that's happening. Um, you know, it is harder typically to recruit women. People are commenting on the fact that in the middle of COVID, women have uh, have have um, experienced a higher burden of COVID, including through childcare and other things, which is true. But in a minority government, folks should have been recruiting candidates all along. And like, yes, New Brunswick is small, but there are still 750,000 people. Half of those people are women broadly. You can't say that you couldn't find 26 women to run for your party. I just think it's total bullshit, to be honest, especially when um, other parties have been able to do it. So that is all I'll say on that. Obviously, you know, it's something I care about. Um, I will say, though, there are um, a number of candidates that I am really excited about. You know, I've been really excited to see a number of younger candidates running, particularly for the NDP. Um, I'm also excited that for like really the first time ever, I think there are four candidates running overall in the province that I actually know personally um, from from whatever. uh, And they're running for the Liberals, the Green Party and the NDP. So I'm super excited about that. I think it's excellent. And I'm I'm really jazzed to see. Uh, younger folks and folks with a bit of a different background and lived experience actually put their hand up and run. I think it's really brave and honestly, I think it really kind of removes invisible barriers in some ways for other folks who might consider running in the future. So hats off to those people. I'm really looking forward to seeing how some of the kind of more exciting, I'll call them, candidates actually fair in this election. In some cases, I think they actually have quite a large advantage because they are more social media literate. Um, they've been spending time on social media in the past for advocacy and other reasons. So um, love it. I think congrats to everybody who put their name forward, but particularly those who like are really jazzed about making some change and I really look forward and fingers crossed that um, that those candidates make some headway. Okay, so let's go to policy. I guess after like 12 minutes of opening comments and context, <laughs> we'll go into policy, which uh, broadly were the kind of was the topic that uh, many folks engaged with me on social media with questions and things like that. So let's get started there. Honestly, like what I really actually wanted this episode to be was an entire um, platform analysis episode of, of each of the platforms. You all know that I'm policy wonk. That's obviously where FemWonk gets its name. It's no surprise. First of all, I can't do a policy or a platform analysis because there's only, I'm going to say 1.5-ish platforms released. So the NDP have released their full platform. They did that on Sunday night. Timing's a bit odd, but whatever, they got it out before anyone else. Uh, it's, it's you know, it's a platform. It's 27 or so pages. Uh, it's got themes, sub-themes, the whole thing. So good on them for getting it out. 
the People's Alliance basically put their 2018 platform on their website with like a paragraph at the beginning of it to highlight the issues that they're still focused on. For example, as they call it, language equality. Um, so that's interesting. It's not entirely surprising. Obviously, the smaller third parties don't have the same type of capacity necessarily to do a full kind of brand new platform um, in just two years after the last election. And it was a snap election. So, you know, being involved in writing platforms before myself, it's very difficult it would be very difficult to write a platform in a week or two weeks. Nearly impossible. So it makes sense. Um, again, they also got a handful of, of their asks achieved in the last legislature because they are propping up the conservative government. But, you know, uh, I'm not entirely surprised that this has been their approach. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe they will put a full platform together in the next 10 days. I have no idea, but... Uh, as it stands, that's kind of what they've got. And then on the Green Party side, they have kind of their core guiding principles and a few bullet points about those on their website. But again, it's not a comprehensive platform. I assume that they'll put out a full platform. I don't know. Um, but just kind of giving you a lay of the land there. On the on on the liberal and conservative side, there there are no no platform and. I haven't seen any indications of when we'll see those. I think, um, you know, two points on that. One, like I said, it it's not that easy to write a platform, right? Snap your fingers, here's a whatever 25-page document on what we'll do as government. Great, that is not entirely the easiest thing in the whole world to do. And then add the layer in the case, again, of the liberals and conservatives where they have a robust party structures across the province, typically they would have their members feed in and their riding associations feed in and engage in this process. So I think in the case, particularly of the liberals, where they actually just appointed most of their candidates and in many ways actually cut out the riding associations without engaging them in some way in the platform process, I think I think it would just be like really problematic. Again, though, they, you know, like the People's Alliance and, and every other party, they have a platform that they ran on two years ago. It is not at all, I think, in line with um, Kevin Vickers, the leader's vision. So I would be shocked if they've even opened that platform. Yeah, so so that is, you know, that's kind of, I think, some of the context behind it. On the conservative side, you know, they presented a budget in March. So that was what, five months ago. So, you know, Higgs has pointed to that kind of time and time again, like we're running on this budget in many ways. So, I mean, that's again, the landscape of, of where the platforms stand. It is quite different from what we've seen in the past. However, in many cases, parties will hold off on, on, releasing their platform and there's a number of reasons for that um there is a leaders debate on you know thursday night the day that this podcast uh, is released a, a not uncommon um approach would actually be to release your platform on the day of the leaders debate or the day before but again i don't know who who knows we'll see you're seeing more and more even even with the smaller parties 
this um, this kind of rollout of platform. So if you release your platform on the first day of the campaign, everybody knows what you're going to do. Great, that's transparent. But what it means is when you go and do an announcement every single day or a couple announcements every single day, which is what most of the parties are doing, um, you're all you're scooped. You've scooped yourself, right? People know you're going to come out and say, hey, like, here's what we're going to do on affordable housing. Hey, here's what we're going to do on this. So parties favor this model of unrolling their platform essentially through announcements. I, I think this particular election, um, you know, being a pandemic election, I think there's something that I... How do I phrase this? I think it has become very apparent to me in that t- model that you know parties are very much playing to the traditional media landscape while doing that. Uh, which, duh, I guess, um, that's not a surprise. But my question is, in this moment in time, is that the right way to actually get your message out there? Is it actually the right, you know, method to say to because because that's exactly what happens, right? Like leaders today will have probably three stops. They'll make at least one announcement. Well, actually, I guess it's it's debate day, so they might not do that. But in a normal day, they would. Um, they invite the media. The media, in the case of the liberals and conservatives, are on on the campaign bus with them, likely. Um, and the media writes a story about it and, and, you know, the parties post about it on social media. Okay. Well, in this election where, as again, I'll quote my dad, nobody has any idea what's going on. Wouldn't, um, even flipping that model on its head, maybe work a bit better. I don't know, especially when you're promoting early voting, like all parties are promoting early voting because of the pandemic, yet none of them again, save the NDP, have put out a platform to say what they're going to do. It's just it's just a little bit odd to me. Again, from the political tactics side, I guess maybe I get it, but I, I really don't because I think, again, like particularly, like sure, the conservatives are going to say they're running on their budget, but other parties really could have used this as an opportunity to tell voters what they were going to do and just to hit it over and over and over and over and over again when they knew voters were going to be harder to reach. Okay, so now you're like, okay, Katie, talk to us about actual policies that they've announced. I have been totally underwhelmed by not, I'm not even going to say the policy conversation in this election because, again, honestly, we don't see great policy conversations in elections really anymore, but that doesn't mean parties can't uh, propose robust, good, interesting policy. The other thing that's interesting in this election is because it was a snap election, parties don't have to cost their um, proposals or their platform. So in some ga- in some ways, you would have almost thought like, okay, great, we don't have to cost this. We don't have to tell people that, you know, pharmacare costs this much or, um, I don't know, like, you know, basic income costs this much or building all of these affordable housing units costs this much where you would have just two years ago. But that's not at all what we're seeing. We're seeing these little tiny targeted announcements that don't really build towards a vision that just kind of get, again, released in the way I just outlined. And, and, 
I just find it so odd. Like, at least present themes, right? Like, okay, here are all the things we're going to do on healthcare and like announce them one by one, sure. Or here's all the things we're going to do on education and announce them one by one, sure. But like, I I was shocked and I, I said, made some comments on social about uh, the liberals and Kevin Vickers announcing um, interest, uh, um, eliminating interest on the provincial part of student loans for New Brunswickers who stay in New Brunswick. That's a $7 million commitment yearly. Uh, Sure, okay, in in a pandemic world, that's maybe a lot of money, but that is pennies, like, in many cases. Like, Great, sure. Again, I think that is a, a good policy, but you're the party of the free tuition program. Where is the like? Where's the vision on this? And you know, folks commented on uh, again, like kind of engaged with me on social to ask, like, well, maybe maybe there's something else coming. Maybe I have no idea though, and that I think is a bit of the problem. I will say, though, you know, some of the conversations around affordable housing have been okay. Um, I think, unfortunately, none of the parties have a real understanding of what affordable housing actually means. You know, we've seen lots of stuff about small modular nuclear reactors, which like, but yeah, I I don't know. I'm just going to literally sit here and over and over be like, where's the vision? So I'll stop that. Um, But yeah, I think... Honestly, the SNAP election has demonstrated the total lack of policy capacity within many of the parties. I'm, it's not entirely surprising, to be honest. Like, in modern day political campaigning, policy uh, takes a backseat to much of the other elements. Uh, Vickers had a weird story in the TJ the other day about all of his, you know, great, rich political friends from across the country who are advising him. And I'm like, okay, cool. But what are they saying on affordable housing, on social assistance, on poverty reduction, on transit, on, uh, you know, food security, on these things that we've seen totally like augmented and exasperated by COVID-19? Um, I do want to comment for a second on the NDP, though. I think it's great that they put a platform out. I think it, you know, it it borrows from very traditional NDP ideas, $15 minimum wage, pharmacare, etc. It wasn't as ambitious as I expected. It was more, I guess, pragmatic than we've maybe seen in the last number of years, which, I don't know, I guess is not a bad thing. But part of the benefit, and some say detriment, but part of the benefit of third parties is they actually can influence the policy discussion by injecting large, robust, innovative ideas, and they can move the needle. When I saw in the NDP platform, for example, a 10% increase in social assistance rates, I was really shocked. Like, that is not... Um, a robust policy to move the needle forward. Um, a 10% increase in social assistance rates is only about, like for example, for um, an individual deemed uh, single and employable, that's only about $50 a month, maybe. Um, yeah, it works out to be maybe $1,000 more a year. 
for somebody who is only getting seven thousand ish dollars a year like a thousand more does not move the needle at all um however they're they're commenting on social assistance so are the green party and i think that's that's excellent um but yeah i i i think i was a bit shocked on that but like i said they're the party that actually gave us a platform that we can nitpick nobody else has done that yet so if if we were doing a full platform analysis episode i would be nitpicking those little details in every platform so i guess that's kind of where we're at you've also seen a total lack of discussion on the gender impacts of covid19 and also actually a fairly total lack of discussion on the economic recovery of covid19 Uh, which is shocking to me. We kind of expected this to be an entire election about that and nobody's talking about it. I think it's hugely problematic and and more needs to be done to actually kind of talk about that conversation and bring it in. Like, I... I honestly would put my vote behind the party that has demonstrated what their plan is for an economic recovery. I have no idea who that is right now. I don't know what those potential policies are it's it's totally this black hole and again I'm, I'm quite totally surprised about that that is enough for me on policy and platforms uh let's talk about tactics so we've highlighted some tactical things throughout this conversation already as you'll recall and actually the very first um interview i did with the cbc for this campaign was talking about what the ground game and like what the campaign on the ground was going to look like. We have spent years, I'll say years in New Brunswick, perfecting, figuring out who is going to vote for you and motivating them to actually vote. That looks like a whole bunch of things. It looks like door knocking, phone calling, mail outs, community events, rallies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But door knocking is king in this space. And the first thing Blaine Higgs did was say, we're not door knocking. Obviously, that was a signal to everyone else. Um, And you're even still seeing it on social media. It's like, oh, this coming from parties who are door knocking. Well, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, yeah, obviously, there are health risks with door knocking. At the same time, do you expect parties to just say, okay, the thing that works the best to win an election, especially a tight election in a tight riding, we're going to just totally not do because of health risk. But again, predominantly because the Conservative Party signaled that. I mean, I don't know. Like, I honestly, I, I'm, so, I'm so up in the air on this one because I think you can do it safely. I think this is a tactic from the conservatives not a health concern and especially for these parties that don't have any money it's like totally yeah it's totally crazy to me um like we know in the last election there were a handful of ridings decided by a handful of votes that's going to be the same thing in this election and the ground game is critical to that so i'm you know i guess this is almost like a reverse test case of that like I'll be interested to see what happens based on that, like based on the total, total diminution. Is diminution a word? I don't know. 
um, of of the ground game writ large. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see. Again, I, I don't I don't come down on one side or another here. I think, you know, it's up to each campaign and up to each team to make a decision for what's best for them and what's best for their riding. But I I'm gonna be really interested to see what happens with a total lack of focus on the actual directly engaging with voters and then motivating them to vote. I, I guess like on the other side, there've been lots of people doing like ask me any things on Facebook and social and things like that. That's great, but it doesn't replace those conversations with voters. And it's not clear to me that any party has figured out how to replace those conversations with voters in a meaningful way at this point. So let's wait and see on that. Um, it'll be really interesting. And it's going to be really interesting again in a handful of ridings. It's going to be interested in St. Interesting rather in St. John Harbor. It's going to be interesting in Fredericton North. It's going to be interesting in Memory Creek Tantramar. Um, I would say less so in in the ridings that are a bit more rural, but nonetheless, right? There's going to be a handful of Moncton ridings that, again, could be decided by a really small margin. And those um, that get out the vote effort on election day or on election weekend or leading up, uh, it literally can give you the 10 votes you need, right? Like there is no question that St. John Harbor was as close as it was because both the liberals and conservatives had really excellent methods of getting voters to the polls. So we'll see. It's super interesting. I guess it could go either way. Uh, I think people will rely more on like the tides of the day, no pun intended, more more than they have in the past. But yeah, it'll be really fascinating. So let's wait and see on that one. Um, and and you know that really leads into my last point, which is the paths to victory. So right now, again, we know the legislature is three Green Party members, three People's Alliance, and then the other. I'm not very good at math. The other 42 seats are almost entirely divided equally, right? Uh, after the election, the Liberals had um, 21 and the Tories 22. Da, 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 math. Yep, that sounds about right. And again, like I just highlighted five ridings that could swing one way or another, depending on a close, um, a close voter turnout. The, you know, the Liberals are counting on safe seats in much of Francophone New Brunswick. Are they taking those seats for granted? Maybe. Um, the Conservatives are going to count on, you know, a whole bunch of seats in and around St. John and then a whole bunch of kind of rural Anglophone seats. Um, yeah, they're counting on those. Are they taking them for granted? Probably. It's a handful in the middle. Um, and in some cases, the, the handful that is held by Green and People's Alliance candidates like it's anybody's game, I think, at this point, regardless of what the polling suggests. It does suggest that the Conservatives are a bit ahead, but as we know in New Brunswick, like, the Liberal vote is so concentrated in a handful, or more than a handful, in, you know, a dozen Francophone ridings. Then same thing on the Conservative side. They have a huge concentration in a handful, again, a, a dozen or so Anglophone ridings. So... It really is going to come down to what happens on the ground. And it's going to come down to, you know, parties holding certain seats and parties picking up 
I guess, obviously, that is a very obvious comment, Katie. Um, but no, like if, you know, if the liberals lose Fredericton North, for example, they almost certainly will not win the election. Vice versa, if, say, the conservatives lose um, Oromacto Lincoln, almost certainly they're not going to win the election. So we'll see. Uh, I know a lot of people are still really keen on returning a minority legislature. Obviously, it's very difficult to um, actually predict that and actually do that. Um, And, you know, lots of people will kind of fear monger about vote splitting. Um, You know, we'll see, right? Like that, you know, vote splitting, if we want to use those terms, will absolutely happen on on the kind of left. I honestly have no idea where like where to even put the liberals on the spectrum right now, but it'll definitely happen between NDP, Green, and probably liberal, um, depending on the riding, right? All ridings are quite different. But St. John Harbor, again, a perfect example. You're going to see probably pretty high support between at least the conservative, the liberal, and the NDP candidate. So what does that look like, right? I don't know, but I think that it'll be part of the story, and part of the story is going to be turnout as well. Um, There are a number of ridings where students, for example, um, mean a whole heck of a lot. A couple are St. John ridings, but, you know, we haven't seen necessarily a a major shift like we have in Fredericton South, where David Kuhn is the MLA, or in Memorick-Tanchamar with Mount Allison, where uh, Megan Mitten is the Green MLA. I think those two ridings will be really interesting with the kind of, in some ways, suppression of the student vote. I think the other area where we're going to see some really interesting impacts are ridings that are kind of really, I guess, suburban. I don't know if we have the suburbs in New Brunswick, but what I mean by that is, you know, election day is a day or two after all of these young families are sending their kids back to school. In a pandemic, are they like, okay, kids off to school, great, now I get to go and focus on voting? I don't know. I really don't know. I think, again, the health and safety and welfare of their children are going to take priority over voting. Um, So I think that'll be really interesting to see, too. I think in many cases we could have said, like, okay, great, this is an election where voters more than really any other time in memory know the capacity of their governments um, have been bailed out by their governments um, have been supported heavily by what their governments can do to respond to the health safety health and safety both you know health wise and economic wise Um, you know where an increase in trust and approval has happened are we going to actually see a decrease in turnout because of that right people are they again they trust their government they're like yep great cool things are good for me good enough um i i am not voting against anybody and in this particular case i'm not super motivated to vote for anybody i think that'll play a role i really do so with that i have no idea how i somehow rambled on for 40 minutes i was like okay this will be like a 15 or 20 minute episode it'll be a short one nope whoops (laughs) whoops <laughs> uh but i hope you got value out of this um i think i got value honestly even just articulating my thoughts on it I'll, I'll also be you know providing thoughts and comments as the election campaign unfolds both on 
uh, you know, Twitter particularly, sometimes Instagram. So feel free to follow me on my personal accounts over there. And I really look forward to seeing what happens and giving a bit of a, a postmortem after election day. So thanks so much for sticking with us. I want to thank our sponsor, Glass Sky. Glass Sky works to help the next generation of leaders make the most of their talents and contributions to society and the workplace in powerful ways. They work with progressive employers who want to embrace diversity and gain a deeper understanding of the changes they are facing as their leadership profiles rapidly shift to one of millennial and increasingly female. Visit their website, glassguy.org, to learn more. And if you liked this episode, share it. You can connect with us on social media at Femwalk, and I'll see you next time.